Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm Alan Murray, and I'm here with my amazing co-host, Ellen McGirt. And Ellen, we have had an incredible year. We have indeed, my dear friend. I have to admit, I was going through our list of podcasts all in the can and scrolling and scrolling and scrolling, and I got a little emotional, as you know, I I typically do. (laughs) We have had some extraordinary conversations at an incredibly challenging time, and um, I'm so proud of this body of work. Yeah, it's, you know, I've been watching the intersection between business and society for a long time. I'm not going to say how long, but it's a long time. (laughs) I I can't think of a year when so much changed. I mean, the word revolution tends to get overused, but the revolutionary forces we've seen in action this year are really extraordinary. I mean, there's the technology revolution that was already underway, but the pandemic accelerated it. That was particularly true in the medical business where we saw the fruits of an unprecedented response of the private sector to beat the virus. But it's also true in digital technology. We had some really interesting conversations about that. Then there was the doubling down of business commitments to sustainability. I think this is the year that business really got serious about the climate challenge and, Ellen, to diversity and inclusion. It's not a new topic, but boy, the level of seriousness of the conversations we were having with CEOs was very, very different. And then on top of all of that, you have this complete rethinking of what work is, how we work, how we do it. Uh, So this is really one for the business history books. And I I hope historians will go back and listen to every episode of Leadership (laughs) Next because I I think we chronicled it. I think we did, too, at a time of tremendous uncertainty, personal and societal growth. I mean, that really was a year to remember. And there's got to be a Pulitzer Prize in there or a Nobel Prize in there somewhere. (laughs) There's so much good stuff. We have to bring in our very special guest today, Joe Yukazoglu. He's the CEO of Deloitte US. He's our partner on the podcast, as everyone knows. But given his specific job, advising many of the companies on the Fortune 500 list, I'm really interested to hear what trends he's spotting and how they will inform where we head next year. Plus, I just want to talk to Joe. Joe, welcome. How are you? I'm actually great, Ellen, and uh, a big thanks to you and Alan. All of us at Deloitte are extremely proud and appreciative of our partnership in pulling off this tremendous body of work. And as I look back on the past year, many came into the year thinking that 2020 was the unprecedented year and things would calm down, yet you could argue there have actually been more twists and turns. The pandemic is no, uh, by no means behind us. And yet in spite of all of that, we've got a reasonably strong economic recovery underway. We have remarkable tools at our disposal to manage the ongoing pandemic. And all of that leaves me relatively bullish, but expecting that the pace of change, the twists and turns are simply the new normal. There is no returning to a calmer period on the horizon. Yeah, so much to talk about, Joe. I I wanna go back to a early February episode where we allowed listeners to come into a CEO roundtable session that you participated in. 
A couple of things that strike me about that session. First of all, Albert Borla, the CEO of Pfizer, was there. And there, there is no company that better captures that incredible technological revolution that we're talking about, the ability to bring a vaccine to market at the first of the year and then widely distribute it was unprecedented. Now, the challenge is now to deliver the vaccine to as many people as possible around the world. And that's very difficult thing because it's a highly coordinated effort with dozens of different governments each of which has its own national plan and its own agenda. And then the other thing about that session was there was a surprising doubling down on the notion of sustainability. That was the very day that Mary Barra of General Motors said that all GM vehicles, all their new vehicles, would be emissions-free by 2035, which was an extraordinary commitment. You know, I think we'll look back and see 21-22 as an inflection point that allowed us to start driving mass adoption of electric vehicles. Uh, General Motors, uh, we are committing $27 billion between 2020 and 2025 for investing in electric vehicles. And we understand to get broad adoption, we need to make sure we cross multiple price points and multiple segments. So that's exactly what we're doing. And that was just the beginning. I would say the majority of CEOs who attended that session and the majority of CEOs we spoke with this season are addressing climate change and making some kind of commitment in some way. Today, United Airlines' commitment to sustainable aviation fuel is more than double all of the rest of the world's airlines combined. Really? And we're putting our money where our mouth is by investing in the startup companies that are trying to build this industry from the ground up. Duke is one of those companies that has made a specific commitment to targeted carbon reduction. So our commitment is to be at at least 50% reduction by 2030 and net zero by 2050. When you're passionate about the outdoors and you see the damage that's being inflicted by development, by changing climate and other, other forces, and you run a business, you feel a responsibility to use that business to try to be part of the solution to the degradation that we've seen. That was Scott Kirby of United Airlines, Duke Energy's Lynn Good, and the CEO of Patagonia, Ryan Gellert. Now, it may not be a big surprise to hear that Patagonia is passionate about the environment, but to hear those serious commitments from an energy company and an airline company, that suggests something very different is going on. Joe, I'd love to hear what you're hearing on the sustainability front, because we've had so many of these kinds of conversations over the course of the year. Well, this has been another surprise for the positive. Some thought that a lot of the momentum around stakeholder capitalism and around commitment to climate would wane in the face of the great societal challenge of COVID, people turning inward, trying to protect the short term. And in fact, the opposite has happened. And I do think it speaks to the fact that organizations by and large are coming to the realization that the business community galvanizing to tackle some of these big societal topics is the right thing to do. It's what their people expect mm -hmm. in an environment where competition for talent has never been greater. And ultimately it is the key to unlocking long-term shareholder value to demonstrate that these business models are durable and will be able to thrive under an evolving set of societal circumstances. 
Yeah, and I think that ties into the conversation we had with Doug Peterson of S&P, right? He pointed out that investors were also driving this push towards sustainability, you know, really putting the punch behind the G in ESG. So I'd love to listen to a little bit of that. And then, Joe, get your take on where investors fit into the mix. Look, I want to go back to this change in the way people are investing and people uh, asking for ESG screens. Is that, do you think, a passing fad? Maybe like SPACs or like investing in Tesla? Or, or is something more fundamental going on that's going to continue to evolve in the way people look at their investments? Yeah, th- this is a really important change. It's fundamental and it's not just going to be a fad. This is not going away. And we saw this. I think one of the signals of that was when the business roundtable changed the definition of a corporation from being about only serving shareholders to serving all stakeholders. And when the large businesses represented by the BRT make a change like that, that's actually a signal that this is something that's permanent. You're seeing a confluence of phenomena right now, not just a significant focus on this topic in the political arena, but large institutional investors increasingly making clear that they view ESG and sustainability as core to their evaluation of the long-term investment prospects, the long-term cash flow generating capabilities of the enterprises that they're investing in. And as a result, there's a rush right now to determine how do we capture the data to provide investors with the information they need? How do we make certain that there's a robust reporting mechanism with all these different models out there, all these different frameworks? How do we align around a set that companies can be confident they're producing information that's credible, that's reliable, that's relevant, and that's meeting the increasing information needs of the investment community as they price ESG into their decisions. I'd like us to spend some time on technology because I do believe that technology is such an important driver of these other trends we've been talking about. You know, the pandemic hit and we heard so many stories, both in 2020 and in 2021, of companies that did in one or two or three years what they thought was going to take them five or 10 years. One example that immediately comes to mind is Brian uh, Nickel at Chipotle. Even before March of 2020, he had begun laying the groundwork to grow the company's digital business. As it turned out, that move served him very well during the pandemic. So, you know, we started this process of transforming the company to be both a great culinary company, but also a terrific digitally forward company. And, uh, you know, we installed what we call digital make lines, uh, which is a second really second kitchen Mm. to take care of all the orders coming in from the app and the web. And I'm sorry, you did that. You did that before the pandemic, before the pandemic. Yeah. And this is, this is one of those things where that's very smart. Well, yeah, sometimes, (laughs) you know, your strategies end up finding an unknown accelerator and, you know, the pandemic proved to be an accelerator on the strategy. And then when the pandemic hit, our frontline business, our dining room business got shut down. And all of a sudden we went from 10, 15% of our business digital to really 100% of our business being digital. So you were 10 or 15% digital before the pandemic. You obviously went to 100% digital during the shutdown. Where is it balanced out? Where are you now? 
you know, before the pandemic, we were probably on track to do about a billion dollars of digital sales. Now coming out of the pandemic, we're probably on track to do over $3 billion of digital business. Wow. And that'll represent 40% of our, our business for kind of this calendar year. This is a, a classic example of the old saying, let no crisis go to waste. And a, a lot of the initiatives that in the past might've been caught up in corporate bureaucracy or studied to death were accelerated out of necessity. And as a result, you're seeing an increasing criticality of all things digital. That being the dividing line between organizations that are thriving and those that are not. We should talk about some of the people who have not been thriving this year. I mean, that has come up a lot. I'm flagging right now the ongoing conversation about women in the workforce and the the role that pandemic has played in many cases, derailing their careers, forcing them out of the workforce. It's the kinds of setbacks that nobody really saw coming, but we probably should have. But Ellen, one of my favorite interviews of the year was when we had Indra Nooyi on. Uh, Indra, of course, is the former CEO of Pepsi, but since she has stepped down, has really made this her cause and is trying to address the things in the workplace that work against women being successful in business and having families. I thought that was a powerful discussion. All of the work about the future of work, the future of offices, everything talks about hybrid work, automation, Mm -hmm. remote work, talks about technology disruption. But the word family and helping young family builders and women balance their family and work, juggle all of it. And how is that going to come into the future of work discussion seems to be absent. And I say this because we need women in the workforce. Women are getting all the top degrees. They are wicked smart. They are graduating in larger numbers. They want economic freedom. And the country needs their talent. At the same time, women are also primary family builders. And so we want them to build families too, if they want to. We want to give them the opportunity to have families. But somehow, the fact that we need young women to do both, somehow doesn't enter the equation at all. And we don't talk about what we need to do to make their life easier. So that was a really poignant and important part of that conversation. And she is really identifying a very serious problem that's only going to escalate. So it was encouraging to hear some other CEOs who are taking real concrete steps to address it. One that really stood out to me was Jen Tejada at PagerDuty. No matter how hard it is, I'm committed to giving our employees flexibility because I think that is one thing that can help women return to the workplace. I also think we need to think about how we support childcare, emergency childcare. Like PagerDuty put together a slew of new benefits over the course of the year to try and support parents and try and support people managing the health of their own parents throughout this pandemic. And I think those kinds of benefits are becoming table stakes and frankly, mission critical in terms of getting people Mm. back. I also think that uh, having diverse boards, having diverse leadership teams where you have voice of these people considering these challenges front and center in every big leadership decision you make is super important because one way to 
ensure that you're going to leave women and underrepresented people behind is to not have any representation in those leadership discussions. And so I think representation became more important, not less. I think notwithstanding the near-term challenges, the long-term potential to substantially improve the issues around gender equity is quite powerful. The new ways of working that we're seeing rise to the surface, the greater levels of flexibility, the crumbling of some of the old orthodoxies around what type of a work model it takes to rise the corporate ladder, those things actually have the promise to make huge improvement to increase representation, increase equity. And so, yes, we have a near-term challenge. We can't allow things to go backwards while we're still navigating the pandemic, but we also have a bunch of tools that are gonna enable us to make much more headway on this issue going forward over the long term. As we're talking about the future of work and flexibility and hybrid work, I do wanna point out that we've had plenty of conversations with CEOs whose employees didn't have that option. I'm thinking about Ravathi Advaithi of Flex, which is running factories. The biggest issue was, it was a human crisis. So when you're asking 5,000 people to show up in a factory to make a product, the first thing that was in my mind was, how do you do it in a safe way? Corey Berry of Best Buy, which had to have people in their retail stores. We heard two things loud and clear. Our customers said, I'm starting to feel really unsafe. And our employees said, I am incredibly worried about my personal health and safety. And so we, over a span of 48 hours, moved our entire business to curbside. Carol Tomei of UPS that had to be delivering on an even accelerated schedule during the pandemic. No one was prepared for the pandemic, but we knew that we needed to keep the world moving. We needed to keep commerce moving, wherever the whatever level of commerce was going to happen. We needed to keep it moving, and so we needed to make sure that our UPSers were essential. And I think one of the most moving conversations we had was with the CEO of Albertsons. I mean, here's a company that from day one, the workers had to be there in the grocery stores. They were feeding us. They were keeping us alive, providing the food we needed to survive. And it gives you a very different lens on this whole future of work question. We had to be there to feed at least the communities that we operated. Food and everything else, cleaning supplies, etc., were so essential. So we focused on that. To do that, though, we focused first on the safety of our people. And what we found is when people felt safe operating and working in our stores, they made our customers feel safe. I do want to take just a minute to go back to this conversation about the future of the office, about knowledge workers, about where they're headed, because we've had a number of conversations about that over the course of the year. And I have to say here at year end, I I don't feel like that problem has really been solved. Everybody talks about hybrid. We're going to be hybrid. But nobody seems to know exactly what that means. And Joe, I wonder what you're telling clients about how to adjust to this new world of office work. This is another area where humility is is in short supply. Too, Too many grand predictions around the ultimate answer when we're still in the early innings. We have a lot of confidence at Deloitte that we're ultimately gonna navigate to what we're calling the best of both. That there are some things that we learned during the pandemic around flexibility, 
around less time commuting, around less of a carbon footprint. And we don't want to let those lessons be lost and go back to the old way, nor do our people. At the same time, there is a growing recognition exacerbated by this concern over loss of connectivity, difficulty of maintaining culture, that there are times when being together in an office setting matters, and it matters a lot. And you know the, the suggestion in many of these career tracks that somebody can have an equal career working over the long term almost entirely virtually, mm -hmm. uh, I think runs the risk of just being disingenuous and promising things that can't be delivered upon. You know, Joe, culture is such an important piece of the puzzle, and it is a part of the puzzle that people are really continuing to struggle with, especially as we emerge into whatever new normal comes next. One of our guests who had a lot to say about what people really want from work was Michael Bush of Great Place to Work, who is a wonderful partner for Fortune and lots of companies around the world. They do in-depth assessments of employees at global companies, and they come up with some really great insights of what makes people happy and productive at work. And when we ask the question, what would make this place more of a great place to work, what they're saying and what they're talking about is social support and connections, meaningful connections with others. They're talking about a company that's making a difference. They're talking about a company that's not saying they care about the environment, but are doing things every week about the environment. Not only are we in an environment where the demand for great talent is at the highest we've ever seen it, but the things that bind an individual to their organization, the sense of connection, feeling like they're part of a team, that has taken a real hit in a primarily remote working environment for many organizations. And that then raises the question, how do you replicate that sense of connection, that sense of belonging to an organization where the physical proximity of individuals to each other isn't what it once was and probably isn't going fully back to what it once was. And that's where you really see purpose come into the conversation. People want to be part of an organization that they believe in. Yes, they want a thriving career. Yes, they want to make certain they're compensated fairly and they have the right benefits. But those things are just table stakes. They want to know how is my great effort that I'm deploying day to day going to result in real impact in doing work that's meaningful, that's supporting a thriving broader economy, creating jobs, solving difficult issues, supporting my community. And that's why you've seen purpose rise to the top of the C-suite agenda. Yeah, Joe, that is such a great point. You know, I get chided from time to time by Jim Collins, the great business thinker, historian. And what Jim says is, hey, this isn't new. The best companies have always been guided by a strong sense of purpose. And he may be right, but what's clearly new is the urgency around the topic, the feeling that all these things that are going on, the racial justice crisis, the great resignation, the need to address climate change, and this kind of generational force in your employee base, all those things are pushing it way up the agenda in a way we've never seen before. No doubt. And that is a trend that will only accelerate. And that's actually a beautiful element of employees feeling empowered to speak up for their values, what's important to them, and to continue to push companies to do more and to advocate for values that are in line with their own. 
before we leave, I do want to say one of the things that makes this podcast so much fun is just the serendipity. You know, you every once in a while, somebody comes in. We're, we're talking about these big, big trends, the trend towards sustainability, the trend towards racial justice, the trend towards a, a new hybrid way of of working the huge technology revolution underway. And every once in a while, somebody comes in who has just taken those trends and sort of ridden them in a fun, interesting, exciting way. My favorite, Ellen, was Josh Silverman of Etsy. Maybe it's because you're such a big Etsy fan and because of your trout that you keep behind you. When you fly fish, you have reasons for people to give you fish gifts all the time. My house (laughs) is an absolute monument to Etsy makers. Yes, it is. Well, let's listen to a piece of what he had to say. Overall, I think for me and for the whole company, if there's one thing we want to demonstrate to the world, it's that being a good citizen makes us an even better business. I think there's this narrative out there that somehow you've got to pick. You're either a good business or a good citizen, and one comes at the expense of the other. And we don't believe that. We've never believed that. And when I say never, like for the 15 years that Etsy's existed long before I got there, we have always believed as a business that those two things are self-reinforcing. And I think 2020 helped a lot of the world wake up to the fact that that is true. You know, at a time when there's a lot of problems out there and, and people don't have a lot of confidence in our political system to help solve those problems, if business can't be an important part of the solution, then where are we? You're absolutely right. That was a delightful interview. I I struggled to pick one that's my favorite, but there's an element of all of them that I really have come to love is that when you get to have a conversation like this, not just about how you operate, but why you operate and what kinds of decisions you have to make out of the bigger why, then everyone gets to use their leadership voice just slightly differently. You know, and this is, as a journalist, I get to have different conversations than I ordinarily would um, in other parts of my life. Pat Gelsinger from Intel was a perfect example of that. You know, we're, we're talking about all the nuts and bolts, you know, it's like all hands on deck, move, 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 move. And then we asked a question about faith. I've got one last question for you. You're a devout Christian and have publicly shared really many beautiful things, testimonies about your vision and your sense that for you, the workplace is a form of ministry. And I mention that specifically because of all the elements of diversity and inclusion that we talk about and I report on, faith is the one that we talk about the least. Interfaith Uh employee resource groups are growing in number, but still pretty rare. And I was wondering if you could share what you've learned over the years about helping people of all faiths feel that they belong at work, or at least how to better have these kinds of conversations, because I think it's pretty important. Yeah, I do too. You know, I'll say is the more inquisitive I am of other faith perspectives, of other religious views, of other views of individuals, the more inquisitive, open, winsome I am, the more I get to be clear and public about my own beliefs in that respect. So it's exactly the opposite of how we tended to treat because we said, oh, you know, we can't talk about that in the workplace. No, we want to talk about it in the workplace because for those who hold strongly to different religious perspectives, that is an important central part of who they are. And if I don't let an important central part of who you are come into the workplace, I'm not getting all of you, right? I'm getting a subset of your capacity in that environment. And and our objective is to unleash you in the workplace. And to me, this is so powerful. uh, And it just has created so many wonderful opportunities for me to be clear. I'm a Christian. I'm proud of it. I'm proud to be a Christian. And oh, you're Hindu. 
Well, let's talk about that, right? I was having a wonderful conversation with one of my board members on Ramadan. Every one of these to me is like this open door that just gives you this ability to relate to people in ways and dimensions that just brings more of ourselves into the workplace. And to me, that's what aggressive diversity and inclusion is all apart. I want to know what you believe and what is important to you. We had a moment like that in every single conversation this year where you can hear that leadership code switch in their voice. That's my that's when I know we've got a great episode. And that's my favorite part of doing this podcast, besides doing it with you, Alan. Well, I love doing it with you. But at the end of the day, we're talking to people. They're people. They're CEOs, but they're people. And leadership is becoming more authentic. And these conversations are becoming more authentic. It's it's less about prepared talking points, more about dealing with immediate crises that you have to authentically respond to. But Joe, what I'd like to end by asking you to to look into your crystal ball for a minute here and tell us in the in the coming year, what should we be looking for? What trends should we be on top of? What's in store for us in 2022? In spite of all of the uncertainties out there, we're extremely optimistic. It's unfortunate that some of these trends took a global pandemic with all the tragedy that is associated with it. But there's a lot of good coming out of this. And we're going to continue to see the payoffs of companies' accelerated investments in digital transformation. We're going to continue to see the future of work come to life in the wear of it and sort of really operationalizing hybrid where you get the best of both working models, pairing great technology with human ingenuity in a way that frees people up to truly leverage those unique skill sets and spend less of their time on the rote tasks that technology is exponentially better at. And I suspect, Alan, as I know you're very passionate about, that we will continue to see an accelerated commitment to stakeholder capitalism in a world where there are few trusted institutions left. Business is still one of them. And we will be looked to to solve the big stuff, including uh, a responsible transition to a lower carbon economy. And uh, on the whole, I suspect we'll be sitting here at the end of next year with a bunch of stuff that hit us out of nowhere, but nevertheless, a forward trajectory and uh, continued progress as we all work to sort of bring to life the missions of our organizations. Yeah, happy happy to end on a note of optimism. Me too, for sure. Joe, thank you so much for that conversation and for your support for the Leadership Next podcast. We appreciate it greatly. Leadership Next is edited by Nicole Vergala, written by me, Alan Murray, along with my amazing colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media. Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes. 